RCAF Jump Seed, you are clear for takeoff. RCAF Jump Seed, the official podcast of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Today in the Jump Seat, Major Milan Lavallee. Now here's your host, Captain Brian Morrison. I'm your host, Captain Brian Morrison. With me today is our guest, Major Milan Lavallee. Thanks so much for being on the show. I know you're super busy with your move coming up to Brussels. Yes, Brussels, Belgium. Me and my family get to go over for a, a fun year of schooling and adventure. Is there any language training involved or anything for that? Uh, no, I'm a Francophone by background, so uh, I meet the language requirements for the school. So I was one of the lucky uh, enough people to get picked to, to attend. They speak a bunch of languages in Belgium, though, don't they? Yes. Um, the school actually will be uh, given in French, English, and in Flemish. That's right, Flemish. That's right, the other one. Right, right. Apparently we'll get a translator, hopefully, because uh, those classes might be a little difficult. But uh, I'm pretty excited for the challenge. Very cool. Today we're here to talk about Op Aegis, which was the evacuation of Afghanistan. Before we get into that topic, can you tell me a little bit about your career that led up to your time in Op Aegis? Yes, uh, of course. Uh, I joined the military when I was 17, fresh out of high school. Um, I grew up in northern New Brunswick, and uh, my choices were to go work on a farm, work at Tim Hortons, or do something else. So uh, I got the offer to attend RMC, uh, graduated in 2008 with a chemical engineering degree and was originally an aerospace engineer, Harry, by trade. Uh, did that for 20 years and then had the opportunity to uh, change over to the newest occupation in the RCAF, the air operations occupation. And OPA just played like a really big role in that switch over. So now today I'm just finishing up my posting at, here at Barker College as an instructor, which was amazing, and heading off to uh, Staff College. So you were still an ARI when you were involved in Op Aegis, is that correct? Yes, um, I had the opportunity uh, to deploy. Uh, this was actually my third deployment, but it was the first deployment where I wasn't in a hard like aircraft maintenance role. I was the Air Task Force APD Commandant, which the role is mostly um, administrative in nature. So when op pages rolled around, it was something that was completely out of the box and not expected by anyone. So it was a little jarring at the beginning. Yeah, no doubt. Were you still a major uh, in your, as an area, or did you take a reversion in rank? Uh, no, I am still a, a major. Um, but you were a major as an area as well. Yes. Okay. Yes, Just yeah. so you're you're in a major's role in a, a role that is supposed to be administrative, and then things begin to fall apart in Afghanistan. So, can you tell us a little bit about what led to the situation in Afghanistan? Uh, yes. So in May of uh, 2021, President Biden made the announcement publicly that the troops were going to be pulling out of Afghanistan, ending their contribution to uh, the war in the region. When we arrived in theater in March of 2021, the situation was being tracked, but it wasn't really part of our mandate. Uh, our mandate was to provide an airlift within the region. So we had a two CC-130J Hercules aircraft that were flying cargo and people around the region. So as this thing was developing, troops started pulling out. The intelligence community was sending some concerns that, you know, there's some instability that's happening. At the time, my boss uh, said, oh, this is going to be interesting. We'll see how this develops over the length of our tour, which was six months. And 
in July is when things started really getting a little heated, where the Taliban started their march towards Kabul. And our role was still unsure at the time. We were just kind of standing by. We had provided airlift into Afghanistan to provide vaccination to Canadians on the ground because it was during the big vaccination rollout for Mm -hmm. covid So we kind of knew how to operate, but we weren't sure what the operation was going to look like. On the side of this, my boss at the time was preparing to head home on a a vacation with his family. And his words were like, ah, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. You know, Canada is going to, our role will be really minimal. We're going to stay here in in the Middle East and and just kind of do what we're doing. So don't don't worry. Everything will be okay. So at that stage... It wasn't obvious yet what was about to come in terms of how rapidly things would decline. No, it wasn't. The timelines that they were giving were, you know, well after our deployment was supposed to end. And we weren't the lead agent, the governmental agency at all. So we were kind of monitoring, but really just kind of standing by to see what was going to happen. Before we get further into that, can you just clarify for me where exactly you were and what your job was? Uh, yes, I was deployed to Ali Al Salim Air Base in Kuwait. Uh, this is actually the second time I get deployed into the region. Um, I got a chance to go in 2015. Uh, but this time around, it was a lot quieter. I was the deputy commanding officer for the air task force, and we were about 55 people strong with two aircraft um, with a flying debt providing kind of cargo and, and personnel transport. So, right. So this was the J models after the, oh no, the Auroras were still there as well though, right? No, they had the departed by the time I got there. So okay. the previous Roto, um, the CH-146 and the CP-140 Aurora all came home. So um, the debt had shrunk in size uh, quite considerably. Okay. So I wonder what that looked like. I, I was there on Roto 0 on the Aurora and then on Roto 1 and Roto Zero is quite small. Everybody was still feeling out how big the camp would be and how big the staff was necessary and all those questions. And then on Roto One, uh, it had exploded and there was, <laughs> you know, uh, hundreds of tents and like everything was was 10 times the size it had been when I was there my first time. Yeah, even compared to 2015, um, it had considerably shrunken down. So we were um, we got pretty close really quick. Uh, because we are such a small detachment. We were attached to, attached to the Joint Task Force Impact, which was a lot of army support, mm-hmm. uh, which made things very interesting. And we were that air component within the region. And what was your main responsibility? Mine were more kind of administrative, supporting the boss in mission sets that he was trying to do, uh, making sure uh, all like personal evaluations were done and helping out the log section if mm-hmm. they needed anything. A lot of admin tasks. Standard to IC work. Yeah, exactly. Right? And, and what about your unit as a whole? What was your mission? Uh, the mission was to provide airlift cargo and people within the Middle East. So Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Iraq and Kuwait. Um, So we would move coalition forces, not only ours, which Mm. was uh, very interesting and and really cool because we got to work with other nations, uh, Danish, Italians, um, Germans, you know, providing that service. There's not a lot of intra airlift. We, We were supporting the mission by making sure stuff and people got where they needed to be. So interesting work, but fairly stable, fairly predictable within all the unpredictability that comes with cargo. You kind of knew what each day would bring, right? Oh, yes. Our days were pretty nice. Like we had 
breakfast and, you know, I got to go to the gym Mm -hmm. and, you know, call my family back home, which was always nice. COVID restrictions were starting to lift at the time. So we got to, uh, you know, go hang out with the Italians and see kind of what they were doing. And, uh, you know, they make really great pizza. They actually deploy a pizza oven. It's really cool. So life on the (laughs) camp was was starting to kind of go back to normal Mm post-COVID. We were busy, like there was work to do, but it wasn't like an extremely dynamic few months. Mm -hmm. It was very stable, but we, we kept busy. Yeah. So it was very stable until it wasn't, because what happened next? <laughs> you said your boss was back home and had just assured you that everything would be fine. Yes. So we had done a few flights into Afghanistan. So we did five flights before the operations actually started. And those flights were for evacuation? Yes. Uh, they were uh, mostly embassy staff and kind of non-essential personnel. Uh, because by that time, the Taliban had started marching towards Kabul. It was just a matter of time. We just didn't know what that time and space actually looked like. Now, after the operation, that was a matter of weeks. But that was all we were supposed to do was those five flights. And then, you know, our job was done and we had like, we're going to go back to our normal routine. So the boss left. He's like, OK, everything's good. Everything's closed off. You know, good luck. I'll see you. And I think he was gone for Basically, he came back after the operation was over. He missed okay. everything. <laughs> uh, but I will distinctly remember him like at the at the door of the tent going, whatever happened, you got this. Uh, you have great team here. And, you know, I'm always a phone call away. Mm-hmm. So I was like, OK, yeah, it's going to be great. And then he left. And not even like six hours later, I got the phone call that three C-17s were coming our way uh, because the mission had drastically changed. So what goes through your head when you get that phone call? Sheer panic at first, mm-hmm. um, disbelief, shock. The phone call came from a guy that I know quite well out of One Canadian Air Division. I thought he was joking at first uh, on the phone call. Mm. So originally I was part of the C-17 fleet as a maintenance officer. So I know the fleet quite well. And because it's a strategic fleet for the RCAF, it doesn't, the command of it doesn't get passed around that easy. Like it's not something that happens. And when he said that I was getting operational command um, or tactical command, I don't remember at this point, it was, it's all a blur, uh, but basically they were coming to me and, and they were going to be used for this. I was just in shock because this was something that had never happened before. Mm-hmm. And not only one of them, but three of them out of a fleet of five. So that mm-hmm. was pretty substantial. And, and for the listeners... Uh, when we talk about operational command and tactical command, there, there are various levels of basically ownership and responsibility that you can have over a unit. And uh, to have three aircraft, we sometimes call it getting chopped over to you, is is a pretty huge deal. Yes. When the, the first one landed, I was actually standing on the the apron and watching it taxi in going, oh, wow, this, this is actually happening. But Overall, I was super lucky because the team that I had, like the, the core team that I had was just fantastic humans. Mm-hmm. Like they worked so hard and went above and beyond. And I think that is why it was successful. Like it's not me by myself. Like there's there's no way. Mm-hmm. Um, so our group of 55 people ballooned to like 300 really mm-hmm. quick, like overnight. And it's not just pilots and load masters and technicians. We had doctors and medics and uh, policemen that were air marshals and occupations that I had never really worked with. So that also was challenging learning kind of what they needed to be supported. And they were all under you? 
Yes. Yeah, because the Air Task Force is this kind of beast that can be kind of manipulated based on what the mission needs. So I would keep getting phone calls from Canada. Hey, there's like doctors that are coming and medics and they're arriving here and they're to do this. And I'm like, cool. They're like, oh, and you're in charge of them. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, okay, sounds good. So you go from a couple Hercs and 55 people to three C-17s and 300 people. And what happens next? Uh, And then the mission starts really quick. So what does that look like? No sleep for, (laughs) (laughs) for like two weeks. It looks like planned chaos. Mm. So one of the problems we were having is that it's so hot. It's so hot. Um, We were in the dead, well, starting to get into the summer season. And airplanes don't like heat. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was causing us a lot of problems. But how it works is that you said at the beginning of of the show, we were contributing to the um, U.S. uh, air bridge. So us getting on the bridge, you can like visualize it like you're actually like driving onto a bridge. It's just like a bunch of airplanes that are following each other in the air and then they just take turns landing and then taking off again because there were so many countries involved and so many airplanes. Everything had to be timed. Everything Mm. had to be planned. And yeah, that's right, because you can't just have all, I think it was 13 countries in the coalition, you can't just have all of their assets all arrive at once because it would just create this giant traffic jam. Yes. And at the beginning, there was a traffic jam. Um, so in the early days, as the airport was falling and getting overrun by Taliban, we were evacuating our embassy and uh, we we lost air traffic control because the people that were managing it just left. Mm. Um, So by the time that the U.S. came in and established everything, those first few evacuations were really chaotic. And you're kind of sitting in Kuwait waiting for the... um, We had a support element in Qatar that was providing some information and just waiting for those phone calls that the plane is airborne and it's okay and, you know, there's everybody on board and everybody's, like, safe. And mm. so, like, just those moments of sitting at my desk going, cool. So it's – and w- looking at my watch and we had all the clocks in, like, the different time zones and just kind of, you know, internally st- <laughs> stressing out, making sure, like, okay, do they have enough gas to come home? Did mm. they break? Did all the people that we were supposed to put on the plane – get there? Did they get their clearances in time? Did they meet their timings? Because if you don't meet your timings, you get turned around and sent home, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of things, but uh, the crews from 429 Squadron, which is uh, the squadron that operates the C-17s, were the absolute professionals and just amazing the work that they did. Yeah, I had a good friend of mine who was part of that mission, and he said it was absolutely crazy. They had at one point, they left with over 500 people in a C-17, which I think he said there's seats for, oh, I'm going to throw a number out there that's not right, but say 200. 210. You're close. Oh, oh hey, <laughs> look at that. I, yeah, why am I guessing when I have the expert? Uh, so 210 people, and he had over 500 people. They were all just sitting on the floor. But I mean, it's, if it's that or stay in Afghanistan at that point. Yeah, we were looking at various options. Like we have uh, some seats that we can roll on, roll off, and then we're doing the math and... Uh, I was lucky enough to, in 2010, participate in Operation Hestia. So that was the evacuations out of Haiti. I was a young lieutenant at the time, kind of not really understanding what was going on. But Mm I distinctly remember like strapping people to the floor to evacuate them. And um, 
so in our planning process, I called home and this is all about risk, right? How do you, like who accepts that risk of this kind of high priority mission? And we were talking about options and uh, I received the waiver to say, okay, load the plane. And because of my background in engineering, I had kind of some hard things that I wasn't going to accept because it mm-hmm. was super dangerous. But like finding where that line is, where we can safely evacuate people and like the, the aircraft gets back. So our max load was 545. The Americans beat us by a long shot. Um <laughs> But they have air-to-air capabilities that we don't. Oh, for the air-to-air refueling. Yeah, so they would come out pretty empty and then air-to-air refuel. But for us, we don't have that capability. So the first flight, so it took us a few flights to kind of get our processes sorted out. And then the first flight that I got a phone call saying, hey, man, we have 500 people on board. It was around that number. We were expecting 130. So I hung up the phone and I looked over at the, the chief at the time and said, there's 500 people coming. I think this is going to get crazy really quick. <laughs> yeah, because they're coming back to where you are. Yeah. So how it was working is that we would bring them out of Afghanistan into Kuwait. And then we would, for the first half of the mission, also have another C-17, bring them to Germany to get a commercial flight into Toronto. As the mission evolved, we actually had our CC-130J start participating. Um, they also played a pretty significant role in transferring people between airports and also transferring different groups around the, the region. It was like not only the evacuations from Afghanistan to Kuwait, but it was also getting them back to Canada. Mm -hmm. So 3,000 people um, in multiple airplanes on multiple legs with multiple governmental agencies, I don't think had been ever done. Um, And it was an interesting coordination and how eventually we all got it sorted out because there was some contracting and some uh, because waivers and risk was only... um, good for some legs and not for other because like if the person's no longer in danger then we need to you know respect the safety of flight and get back to normal operating Mm. so it caused that you know we had people living on our camp for a little bit so basically something that's acceptable to get somebody out of harm's way in afghanistan once they're safe in kuwait is no longer acceptable exactly now you have to start mixing depending on where the flight is going what's the acceptable level of risk and what rules are allowed to be stretched. Yeah. So in, in the tent, we actually had a whiteboard and me and um, the air mobility detachment commander and the C-17 detachment commander and my uh, my ops captain and major, uh, we literally just on a whiteboard had like little dots that said Afghanistan, Kuwait, Germany, Canada. And like we made little arrows and we made little paper airplanes that we kind of stuck and moved them around mm-hmm. to try to figure out the flow of people because we didn't want them to get stuck in Kuwait. You're running away from a war-torn country and now you're stuck in limbo where you get fed, but you're, you're just kind of waiting to see where you're going to go. And you, like for the staff on the camp, like it it kind of, you, you see the hurt and you see the sadness and you see, but you also see the hope that people mm-hmm. are like, you know, I'm just excited to get to Canada and to like start my new life. So all of a sudden you have hundreds, maybe thousands of people on the camp in Kuwait how did you take care of housing, food? Because this is all unexpected, right? Right. So my role was uh, the aircraft and the, and the bridge. Um, so as I said at the beginning, we're part of the part of the joint task force, and other sections really stepped up. So the operational support hub, you know, erected the camp, and there was a group that was taking care of like 
contracting out all the food. I distinctly remember sitting in in this meeting and they're talking about, okay, so like, what what do we need? And they're talking about like the basic things like food and water and like, and um, I, I looked around and I said, well, what about maybe toys or diapers or formula or things of that nature? Like mm-hmm. how, like there's going to be women and children coming on the camp. Um, right, which nobody there is used to right. in an operational setting is used to planning for. So I was walking through, um, I was actually heading to get mail because mail had come in um, and I saw a triwall of diapers um, sitting in kind of our sprung shelter and it was really strange because it, it kind of was like wow this is this is real like we're actually There's gonna be babies here right and i think it was late one night something had gone wrong and we we're trying to figure something out and i'm sitting on the front step of the of the tent and you know waiting for the the general to come to to probably give him more bad news at this point and i could hear children playing with like kicking this ball and just like laughing and I don't remember who it was. One of the girls walks walks by and said, hey, we have freezies. You want to go give out freezies? Mm. Uh, and I was like, well, yeah, I probably have a few minutes. And kind of walking through and like seeing their faces when they like took the freezies was pretty cool. But yeah, the kids was like really what I think kept me going because mm-hmm. like it's all that hope and like. Well, those are the people you're doing it for. Right. But yeah, it was it was emotionally it was emotionally draining. While you were doing this, you know that the whole time lives are on the line, everything you do, if it's not as efficient as possible, maybe that's less people that get out of Afghanistan. So did you feel that pressure or were you able to stay clinical? How did that feel for you? Um, For the most part, yeah, because things were, it was able to be clinical because things were moving so fast and there was a, a lot of briefings and a lot of just coordinating and making sure everything was was okay and also taking care of of the ATF itself the air task force like the 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 crews and like their well-being because without them we we can't do the mission right so like that was kind of a big driver but when the first plane landed and so we were all there and clapping and then like seeing them walk down the ramp I was that was the first time where it was like oh wow like this is this is real this Mm is yeah it's uh and there's a crazy amounts of stories that are that were coming out of like you know women and children and families fighting through checkpoints to to find the Canadian flag and to to get on an airplane and we were getting some videos of like just the airport itself being surrounded by thousands and thousands of people trying to to get out you know there's that famous uh video that circulated around the news of people trying to climb on on airplanes like Mm -hmm. we were watching it happen and it was just it was jarring um, to say the least, but you kind of put your head down and you have a job to do. And, but after the operation, yeah, it took, it took a a while to get back from it. Were you able to walk away feeling, did you have a feeling of success and that you guys had accomplished something or did you have a feeling of, uh, I wish we had gotten more? Um, success because we have gotten more. I, I don't know. I think by the time that it was over, the equipment, the staff, the detachment, like, I think we, we pushed everything to the, to where if we would have gone in again, I think it would have been very unsafe. Like the aircrafts took a really huge beating and the poor air crew was just, they were just done. And it was really teetering on the being very unsafe. So I think we, we got to the point, I, 
I was happy with what we did because I think we did everything that we could, the best that we could in the short amount of time. And and that's something to realize too, that there's a finite amount of people and a finite amount of aircraft. And, you know, it might be easy for someone who's listening to think, oh, well, an airplane, it's, an airplane doesn't get tired. So there, how can there be a limit? But there's inspections and checks that need to be performed and aircraft are only supposed to operate continuously for so long without certain checks. And of course, the air crew is the big limit, right? And eventually they'll be exhausted and you can fly exhausted for a while, but the longer you do it, the higher the risk is that something goes wrong. The hardest briefing, because um, during this whole thing, I was briefing, you know, generals and colonels and different sections. But the hardest briefing was to go to my general, that was um, the JTF commander, and say, sir, I think we need to call it quits. And then, like laid out why and like the state of the air crew, the state of the aircraft, like, you know, the risk associated if we did go again, what would that mean? Kind of laid it all out for him. Out of all of the briefing, that was the hardest one to give. Throughout this whole operation, safety was really in the back of all of our minds. Safety for the crew, safety for the aircraft, safety for the people that we were evacuating. Um, it's It was really the, the one key constant that we were really planning with. Well, it's kind of like search and rescue, where you have to balance the desire to save everyone with the need to keep your own crew safe and not become another rescue yourself. Exactly. Right? You have a group of people so large that there is no way to get everybody. And, and yet you want to get everybody. So you have to find a place where you draw the line. Yeah, but it, I think 3,700 people, um, it's something to be proud of. Absolutely. And, and this is this this is the currently the highlight of my career. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, this is the second uh, operation like this, so we'll see what the rest of my career... Uh, <laughs> hopefully can... no more evacuations. Yeah, hopefully not, or something a little less stressful. How did you feel that your training prepared you for this experience? My training gave me the ability to draw on the people that are experts and how to manage that. Because there's no way that I knew everything. Absolutely not. I had a good basis in the maintenance of the aircraft, uh, but the actual flying bits, uh, I don't know. I'm not a pilot. Uh, but I had the team around me. And I think my training, that was the biggest thing that, um, especially as aerospace engineers, that, that's one of the things that we pride ourselves on um, is that, you know, our techs would come to us with like ideas and uh, information. And then we would kind of work through that and make the best possible decision with the information we had. Um, but and and that's that's was really important, and I think that's why we were so successful. But it also made me fall in love with operations even mm. more. I was never kind of that geeky super engineer engineer in the background. Um, I was always the one that liked to manage the bits and bobs and kind of see the end results kind of in a quicker pace. Well, that kind of dovetails into my next question for you, which is, what did you learn about yourself from this experience? That one, I can operate on a not a lot of sleep. Um, <laughs> I was also very lucky that the chief would bring me food and made sure that I was very well fed. So that that helped a lot. But I think I learned that operations is where I wanted to be. I learned that with a team, you can make anything happen. And I've learned that it's okay to ask for help mm -hmm. when you don't understand. Because I was calling back to Canada when I had a problem to anybody that wanted to help me or talk to me um, from generals all the way down to, you know, captains. If I knew someone that had an answer, I would call them up and be like, hey, I'm doing this. Can you help me out? So yeah, asking for help 
What was the most difficult part of this experience for you? Seeing the kids that were so hungry coming off that airplane. Yeah. Can you tell me more about that? Uh, It's, you know, they've been stuck in a metal tube for two hours-ish, whatever the flight time was. Scared, you know, not knowing what was happening, where they were going. But once they walk into the camp and because we had toys and we had beds set up and we had like half of our camp became kind of, uh, um, they, they called it the safe haven. Mm. Um, so seeing that relief and seeing the relief of like the face uh, on the parents' face too, like that they're safe now um, made it worth it. But yeah, that was like the first few flights that came in and we actually saw the people and saw what shape they were in. It was, it was really jarring because like. Yeah. You're it must evac- have been emotional. It was. Like you're evacuating people, but then, you know, people are walking off the plane without shoes on mm-hmm. and, uh, or moms that are looking for formula for their babies or, you know, um, people that are actually injured. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a, that was the hardest thing. So if that was the hardest thing, what was the most rewarding part? In a weird way, that too, mm-hmm. because like knowing that they were safe, but also the most rewarding part is how close we got as a team. Um, <laughs> there's this funny story where I was craving, cause when I, this is maybe a little bit too much information, but, uh, in times of stress, I like to eat, um, <laughs> and, uh, being in Kuwait, like the food is kind of meh. So I was like joking around that I would love a Big Mac, like mm-hmm. just would just kill for a Big Mac. And, uh, I don't know, I said it jokingly a few times. And then, uh, one of the captains that worked within the, uh, the log section, one night came into the tent and had a big back in his hands. And I was like, oh, my God, where did you get this? But he was doing some transports into town for some of the crews. Oh, yeah. And he's like, well, we drove by a McDonald's and we just stopped and got it. And like everybody got like, gathered around the table and we had some food and we were chatting and just kind of like that camaraderie that came yeah. with like just being in like this crazy thing that we were all in. So that that moment, like sitting around that table with like my team was like just so amazing. That'll stay that'll stay in your heart for a long oh, yeah. time. And I'd that imagine. was like one of the best Big Macs I've ever eaten. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Those moments you really remember those meals and the the moments you share with people when you're under that kind of stress and uh in those, like you said, those crazy situations. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was amazing. RCF Jumpsy. You were mentioning that part of what you learned was your desire to be more involved in ops. And from there, you actually transferred to our newest trade, the air ops officer. Can you tell us a little more about that trade? Yeah, um, the RCF in 2019 now established a new occupation air operations officer course. And it's a generalist trade. Uh, within the RCF where... Can you explain what a generalist trade is? A generalist trade is like, uh, well, you don't have any hard technical kind of training requirements. Like, for example, a pilot. A pilot has a lot of training to, you know, become a pilot, just like an aerospace engineer has a lot of training and usually a science or an engineering background or kind of more technical. You're, you're very specific in your job. While air ops officers are people that can work within operations center and help in the coordination and planning and kind of that fusion of all the information from all the different parties to kind of make the mission happen. So basically very similar to what you're doing on this mission. Absolutely. This mission is, I think, solidified the the want to stay in operations. So the next step for me in my aerospace engineering career was to go and do 
actual engineering. <laughs> it's not something I was like super excited about. Love the trade, love the people, just not super excited about that portion of mm-hmm. it. So when this opportunity came um, that I could move over and keep my rank and keep everything, I said, hey, why not try something new for the next, I don't know, 10 years of my career? Yeah. And you had just done a huge operation that involved this and, and flourished, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, like that ops tempo and dealing with crisis and trying to find solutions and working with a team. I was like, yeah, I, I could see myself doing this. So we talked a little bit at the beginning about Brussels. Can you tell us a little more about what's next for you? Yes. So I'm going to the command and staff program. Usually it's given in Toronto, but I've gotten the opportunity to head to Brussels at the uh, Ecole Militaire and to take the course there. I get to bring my family, which is pretty awesome. So my son and my husband will get to experience this because usually when I deploy, it's by myself. Mm. And leaving my son behind uh, the last time was uh, was pretty rough. So it's uh, it's going to be a new family adventure for the next year. And then uh, that comes with a promotion on uh, in December. And then we'll see where we go from there. And I'm just excited to see what the opportunities will be. That's really exciting. I wish you all the best with that. Thank you so much. RCF. Jump seat. All right, we're going to shift gears here and go from the jump seat to the hot seat and fire a few questions your way. Are you ready? I am. Okay. Ball cap, wedge, or beret? Oh, good question. Uh, ball cap, if I could get one. Um, <laughs> beret for now. Okay. Mess food or pack a lunch? Pack a lunch. Okay. Mind you, the sandwiches at the mess are pretty good. Okay. Where have you always wanted to visit? Um, I had always wanted to visit Australia, which I actually got a chance on a trip that I took with my husband uh, a few years back. Great choice. I've been there. It's amazing. What's your favorite downtime activity? Uh, Spending time with my family. My son is currently obsessed with puzzles, so we do a lot of puzzles at our house. How old is he? He's three. Okay, nice. Who is the most influential person in your life? I would have to say my mom. I know it sounds cheesy, but she is just so strong of character. Um, and I think um, that's one of the traits that I got from her. If you had to recommend a book to somebody, what would it be? Oh, that is a good question. Uh, we just had this question in a, a culture discussion we were having here at Berker College. I would have to say Chris Bailey. Uh, he's a Canadian author. He works uh, in working in um, how to be more productive in your life, but he just released a book called Calm Focus. I think that's the title. Um, And it's just about dealing with everything that's going on around you, being productive, but still having that mindset of calm and managing the stress in your life, which I think we all need a little bit of. Sounds like a book I could use. Okay. Last question. If you could give yourself one piece of advice at the start of your career, what would it be? It's okay to make mistakes. It really is. It's the way you grow. I felt really bad about it when I would make them, but they've made me who I am today. Did op ages go exactly how I was planning it? No. Was it still successful? Yes. So it's okay. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here today. I know, like I said, you're busy getting ready to move to Brussels. So this is great. Thanks for coming on the show. Yes. Thanks for having me and giving me a chance to share my story. Thank you for being here with us today on the RCAF Jump Seat. We want to hear from you. If you or someone you know has any feedback or a story you want to share, email us at rcafjumpseat at forces.gc.ca. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a five-star review and share with a friend. We'll see you next time in the Jump Seat. 
RCF Jump Seat Podcast. Copyright is Majesty of the King and Right of Canada, as represented by the Minister of National Defence 2023.